Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Mina, joined by our dog's favorite parent, Aji. Hey there, cats and kittens. For this episode, we read Active Record Validations in the Ruby on Rails Guides version 7.0.5, which covers validation helpers and their options, custom validations, and working with errors. Aji, did you learn anything that surprised you? The short answer this time around is that you can group conditional validations. So I'm going to need you to pause for a second while I go put this into my current code base because I've got a few conditional validations that could use it. Sounds like you're going to be refactoring tomorrow at work. That tends to happen after we record these things. Well, you know, getting something out of doing this podcast besides the podcast, I guess. It's the point, right? Right. No, that's exactly why we started doing this. So, all right. Validations. How do you feel about validations? I love validations. Very nice. Yeah, me too. <laughs> sure. Mina, in your own words, <laughs> what are validations? Tables have turned. Well, validations are essentially constraints that you put on the data in your database that ensures one of my favorite things, which is data integrity. What do you mean when you say data integrity anyway? Just make sure we're on the same page here. Yeah, basically, it means that you're not saving data willy-nilly to your database. Why aren't things like the type on the column enough? Well, the most obvious example is when you want to save an email address, you want to make sure that that email address fits a certain format and is essentially a valid email address, or at least look like a valid email address. Right. Email addresses, of course, are one of the things that are historically the hardest to validate because this seems like an easy format. You've got an at, you've got a dot, but it's never quite that simple, is it? Have you seen a regex to validate an email address? I have. It's hundreds of characters. It's ridiculous and impossible to read. Well, now that we know kind of what validations are, they are basically rules that you put on data in your application before they are saved to the database. Why do you think they are valuable? They're valuable because if your application is expecting data to be a certain way and it's going to be relying on that data existing in that way, you want to be able to constrain it from ever being not that. So if you have a record that your system won't be able to handle without it having a certain field on it, you want to make sure that no one can save that record without that field. And Rails supplies a lot of built-in validations because that is so vitally important to applications in general, but definitely web applications when we're basically making forms all day long. <laughs> Certainly. And you mentioned that Rails has all of these validation helpers. So what is your most used validation helper and why is it presence? It definitely is presence. That's the most basic one, right? Is this thing supposed to be here or not? And then we can get into the more nitty and gritty after that. What about you? What do you feel is your most used validation helper? Well, it's definitely presence. But after that, off the top of my head, inclusion is one of the ones that I have reached for often, essentially for fields that can only be from a certain set of options. Right. If you've got a drop down or something, you want to make sure that that data coming in is one of the things that is an option in the drop down. Yep. And also uniqueness. Inclusion and uniqueness are the ones that get used more often after presence, which leads me to the thing that I learned this time around that surprised me is that there are so many validation helpers that I don't know about. Like what? Like acceptance and confirmation. Yeah. 
I don't think that I have ever used acceptance. I'm pretty sure that one was new to me. The thing that I thought was super interesting about that is that it doesn't actually need to be backed by being persisted at any point. This can be something that you'd want to validate as there before moving forward. It can be that checkbox that says, I've accepted terms and conditions, that kind of thing. If it doesn't match a column on your model, then Rails will treat it like a virtual attribute and use it to validate and move on. Yeah, that part was surprising to me too. And I was thinking about the example they gave for acceptance helper, that being the terms and conditions. And I was thinking back about how maybe most people would implement that is adding a Boolean column. But with acceptance, it's much simpler than that. Well, when I saw acceptance and the message that they had in there must be abided, the first thing I thought is that you would validate the dude's acceptance must abide. But typically, I would probably go for a timestamp. This is on my mind right now because we included this great gem in my current project called Time for a Boolean. It's super small, does the one thing, and it does it really well. And also, their readme is hilarious. So you should go check out the Time for a Boolean gem. We'll include it in the show notes. But essentially what it does is saves in the database a timestamp and then allows your application to treat it like a Boolean. So you get all your predicate question mark methods and things like that. And it looks at the column. Is this in the future, in the past, nil, and figures it out for you. And usually you or maybe legal or compliance or someone is going to want to know not only did the person do this, but at what time may your user have accepted terms and conditions, that sort of thing. And that gives you that little bit of extra data to follow up on later. No, you're absolutely right that timestamps a better implementation unless you're using acceptance, which now that you're talking about timestamp, what more information it gives you about a user having accepted the terms and conditions. Maybe that's actually a better way to go than using this helper we just learned. I can see places where this might be helpful and can understand why it made it into kind of Rails's standard library of validation helpers. But in a lot of applications, not all of them, but in a lot of applications, you might want a little bit more information backing that up. So it's nice to have it there, but I don't think I will throw it into my repertoire now that I know about it. Cool. Another one that I don't use very often, and I probably jogged my memory that it exists reading through here, is confirmation. It is that validation if you've got email and you want the user to type their email again to make sure that they haven't made any mistakes in there. So super useful, but really narrow in scope. And that hasn't come up, something that I've needed to use all that often. So you're saying that you had heard of this one before. It didn't feel as completely out of left field to me as acceptance did. So it might be something that I would remember to go into the guides because maybe there's something that does this for me, that sort of thing. But it's not used very often, so it's not top of mind. This is a really good example of something being such a common use case in web application development that it made it into the framework. It's not one of those fundamental describing the shape of this data kind of validation, but it's such a common pattern that Rails has something off the shelf that you can use. I'll just say at first glance, it doesn't necessarily fit in with what my mental model of validation is. Right. And that mental model is that things like if it's a number, it needs to be greater than this. If it's a string, it needs to have this format. It needs to be there or not be there. What about absence? That one's kind of interesting, right? Because it's the opposite of presence. And if you want to validate that something isn't there, that might make you think immediately, but well, why does that column exist? 
Yeah, usually that absence validator is coupled with a conditional. So in certain cases, you don't want a column to contain data. That's exactly how I had it written down here, too, that my most often used validation helpers are inclusion, presence, uniqueness, and absence, but absence usually with a condition. Which I thought was really fun. Absence is basically the opposite of presence. Those two sections are basically exactly the same. Right. Those sections, because they feel so much inverse of the other, are just kind of copy-pasted. Yeah, exactly. Work smart, I guess. Yeah, totally. And if you think about it, the way that we have talked about using the guides most often is that you jump in looking for a specific thing. If you're doing that, if you're parachuting into the guides and looking for documentation of the absence validation helper, then you don't really care that it's the same as the presence one because you haven't read them back to back. So there you go. That's true. I don't really think that it mentions in the guides that this is often coupled with a conditional, right? It doesn't set you up with that kind of uh, use case right away. Yeah, it doesn't really talk about conditionals until a little bit later in the page. Were there any of these other validations that you have used that you feel you have a deeper understanding of now? Yes, the length validator. Sometimes I've seen where telephone numbers get validated to make sure that they're not saving random strings of numbers into the database column. And with that one, I always knew that there were different options like minimum length, maximum length, exact length, basically. What I didn't know is that you can customize the error messages based on the different ways that it fails validation. If it's too long, display this message. If it's too short, display this message. So now it seems like the length validator has a plethora of uses. That was super interesting. It's not something that I've ever reached for. The other thing that was kind of interesting about length to me is mentioning that the messaging is by default plural. And so they recommended and gave a few examples of why you might want to combine that with a presence validator if a length of one comes into play, because it can lead to some confusing messages if you don't otherwise. I actually had to read that paragraph or a couple of sentences several times because I didn't understand why a presence true validation there was going to help with the plural error message issue. Okay, good. I'm not the only one. I was so confused. Well, we're sort of on the topics of messages. Rails will supply a default error message. So if you'd use a built-in helper, it's going to not require you to configure. It will, by convention, give you a specific error message. And the one that's always kind of given me the most consternation is inclusion. Have you felt this pain? I'm sure I have, but I can't off the top of my head remember what the default error message is. Is not in the list. Imagine you're on a form, you have selected something from a dropdown, and it's coded wrong, and you get back an error message on your form, and it says, for example, California is not in the list. What? What, <laughs> what, what am I as a user supposed to do with that to correct that mistake? Yeah. It brings up a really good point that can be easy to lose sight of is that those messages are meant for the user. When you're writing a custom message, whether it's for a built-in helper, for a custom validation helper, you want to remember that that is a message you're giving to your user in order to empower them to correct the mistake themselves. 
that's what an error on a form is for. It's not for the developer coming along later. If it's gonna pop up in a form, you want to be descriptive in a way that's gonna help your user fix whatever is stopping them from what they're trying to do. Yeah, when you write error messages with that intention in mind, it would help the user, but also help your developer coming along later as well, because it generally are more descriptive and informative from like a human perspective. It's the same sort of idea as accessibility considerations. Yes, it helps the people who might specifically need that based on their particular situation, but in general, it's going to help everyone. It's that rising tide raises all ships sort of thing, right? If you make a system easier to deal with and navigate, that's going to be helpful for everybody. Yeah, you get the other side of the coin for free. Exactly. One of the little helpers that we get to examine the errors that have been applied to a model is, of course, you can look at the error object and dot message so you can see what that message is going to be. But they mention it here, and I wanted to know if you knew about or if you've used full message. Yeah, I have. Almost exclusively. Because I could never remember how to extract the non-full messages out of an error object, but I've always remembered full message for some reason. Yeah, I like to use it a lot during debugging, especially if you've got more than one error message going on, because full message is going to usually include the name of the field that has the error attached to it as well. And until we had the conversation just now about writing your messages for the end user, I thought, oh, well, full messages, that's interesting. You like it for debugging because that's what you display to the UI, right? And now they completely flipped that comment on its head. It's there for the view and it's there so that the Rails built-in view helpers call that to get the error message for the user, but it's also useful for us. So again, it's there for the user, but it's helpful for everybody. Do you end up writing custom error messaging for built-in helpers a lot, do you find? No, I always forget that validators have that option. In general, I'm pretty much the same way. Most of the sort of built-in default error messages are pretty useful. They kind of hit it uh, on the head pretty easily, as long as you are coming from an English-centric user race, of course. The only one is that inclusion that is not included in the list is like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I'm going to go get blame that and write them a letter, like a letter, not an email, a letter. Well, but when you think about the fact that these default messages need to be good for general usage and they do provide an option to overwrite those defaults. So, okay. Letter writing campaign <laughs> rescinded. What would you have that say instead? Point taken. What are your feelings about validates associated? I've never used that before. Incorrect. I remember a time when you and I were pairing on a thing. Oh, no. And we fell into a trap because we were assuming that, of course, this is earlier on in our careers years ago, we were assuming that downstream associations were going to get validated because they were coming in. Maybe it was even through accepts nested attributes for, so they're kind of intrinsically linked in the form. And we kept running into problems that the thing downstream was invalid. And it took us a little while to figure out that I guess we hadn't thought about it before, that associations don't get automatically validated when you're saving the parent record. And so validates associated is there to force when you want that to happen. Okay, clearly I don't remember that. 
Another thing they mentioned that is worth pointing out is infinite loops are possible with that. If you have validates associated on both sides, you're going to get stuck there. So if you're using validates associated, you know, be careful because it is reaching outside of the model that your context is taking place in right now. And so you've got to be aware of some extra domain area when you're, when you're doing that. The other thing to be careful of in validate associated, it mentions in the guides, is that the validation error for the associated object doesn't bubble up to the calling model. So sometimes it would make it a little more difficult to figure out why something is failing or at what level you should be rescuing. Lots of things to think about there with that one. Why doesn't saving an association validate that association by default? Let's contrive a situation here. If you have a site that has books and authors and you are saving an author, you don't want to go then through and validate all of the books that they have, right? In this contrived situation, I know books can have more mm -hmm. than one author, but it's probably more of a edge case than you might think without having kind of considered it, which is where we fell into that trap before. You don't actually want it to do that as a default behavior, it feels right and it feels kind of intuitive, but when you think about it programmatically and how a computer thinks about these different records, that's probably going to get you into trouble and might end up doing a ton of extra database work, crawling around a bunch of records when you don't necessarily need it to. That makes sense, I suppose. I'd actually like this portion of the guides here to be expanded a little more because there are some questions that come to mind when looking through this. Does the association have to be in memory? Is there a Ruby object with this particular association to validate? Does it go through and find anything that has a foreign key related? How deep does this go? How much does it pull up and associate and, and validate based on each instance of a save? I don't really know. Finding out the answer to some of those questions might completely invalidate a few of the things that I just said. So we'll leave that up to the viewers to correct me. Listeners, audience, friends. Romans, countrymen, lend me your AirPods. Oh, jeez. Okay, I need to clarify something about validates associated. When I first read it, I had the assumption that it is if you are making a change to the parent object and making a change to its associated object, validates associated makes it validate both things. But I'm just gone back and read the section again. It's a very small section. And it says, when you try to save your object, valid will be called upon each of the associated objects if you use validates associated. So now I'm thinking back to your author and books example is that you have an author with a bunch of books already saved to the database and you make a change to the author. And if the author has validates associated on the model, it will validate the books that already existed, even though you have not made any changes to any of the books that are associated with this author. Is that assumption correct? Because I think I had read this wrong before. That's what I was getting at before is I don't actually know the full scope of this. Will it query the database or is this only caring about associations when you've got something like accepts nested attributes for and you're kind of saving a new thing through a model that has validates associated on it? I don't quite know. Or does accepts nested attributes because it is saving a different model Will it run those validations then, but not at another time? I'm not sure. This is actually kind of ambiguous in its exact operation. And yeah, I'm, I'm left a little confused by this section now that we've talked about it a little bit. 
Because at the very beginning of this page, when it introduces validations in general, talks about how Rails will run validation checks right before a safe SQL command is run into the database. So for create or update, it will run validation checks right before it operates on the database. Knowing that, it's weird to me if you are basically saving two new records, a parent and an associated with nested attributes, to by default not validate the child object because that model is also getting a safe run on it, right? Theoretically, independently of the parent because it's going to a different database table. Right. So the second assumption of it validating existing associations sounds more right. And now I'm like, if it's already saved. Right. Why do you need to validate it? And now I really wish that I understood or that I could recall more about that situation where we ran into a gotcha with this because that would have been learning that we could have taken away from that situation and applied to not only this conversation, but applied forward, except it obviously didn't make a big enough impression. Or we haven't used validates associated since. And so our brain has let go of that experience. And I know the project you're thinking of, and we have erased that project from our memories. There's also that, yes. <laughs> okay, we're both on record saying that we like validations. We use them they are very important and make everything go a lot smoother when your data is predictable. Correct. But there are definitely some places we've talked about email already that you can get into trouble with like over-validating. Yeah, you had mentioned to me actually recently about a name validation that you were maybe feeling like it was being over-validated over by, I don't know, other developers or was it product? I don't remember specifically, but yeah, on my recent project, I had a ticket come in that the name fields were accepting unexpected or kind of unusual or uncommon characters. Maybe it was numbers. And that started a conversation of like, oh, yeah, let's restrict this all down. And that felt kind of scary for me because that's a place where our implicit biases might be able to seep their way into our application without our intending it. Yeah, I think the most common case is folks assuming that names can only be alphabets, and that actually excludes a very common name format, which is hyphenated names. Mm. That comes up a lot with our friend Hillary, who has a hyphenated last name, and she's constantly talking about how there are a lot of sites where she couldn't finish the form or properly finish the form because it didn't accept her last name. And that's such, we're not even talking about maybe like names from other cultures with characters that are not strictly within our 26 alphabets. This is a use case that is so common that some folks, some applications have even validated that out. Yeah, that's without even getting to things like diacritical characters and the wealth of the UTF-8 world and everything that's allowable in Unicode. And pretty much anything in there could potentially be part of someone's name. And you don't want to give them the experience of typing in their name, hitting submit, and your application telling them that they are invalid. That just feels bad on so many levels. Yeah, Elon Musk's kid can't fill out a lot of these forms. Is it Elon Musk? Potentially, if it was Elon Musk can't fill out forms, I would feel less bad, but... His child had done nothing wrong yet. That's 
very telling that you put yet in there as to what kind of parent <laughs> you think he is. Correct. Yeah. So there are a few resources that I will include in the show notes. Some of them take a kind of humorous approach to it. And some of them are a little bit more kind of straightforward. And here's why you might not want to do this particular restriction. That's a soapbox that I tend to climb on in new projects from time to time. So I thought I'd climb on it here too. That's a good soapbox to be on. AWS has a weird thing with that where, what did you call the symbols on letters, diet criticals, mm -hmm. where if somebody's name has one of those and you go to add them to your AWS account as users, the add user form lets you put in those symbols, basically spell their name properly. You can save that user, but for whatever reason, they can't log in. Ooh. I don't know specifically like what the error it tells you is, which knowing AWS, it's probably very uninformative or what sort of the underlying issue is with all of that. But if you have a diacritical in your name, you can add a user with that name, but that user will not be able to log in for some reason. Yikes. Isn't that weird? That is weird. That's probably an effect of having such a large application that has so many things to do, two different teams or two different people on different days writing different validations. And that's that's tough. That's hard to catch and hard to track down sometimes too. When I was made aware of this, the person that told me about it did mention that it was a really difficult thing to track down, like you said. And I guess this is my gift. This is my gift to you, to our listeners, in case you are working in AWS. That is a thing. I saw a suggestion once that instead of denying a name that is full of numbers, you are maybe assuming that someone has accidentally written their telephone number in the name field. Instead of saying, no, that's not a name, you could have a message that would pop up and say, it looks like you've written a telephone number here or something like that. That can be some kind of a confirmation that's still dangerous territory. But if there are requirements like you need to interact with the third-party API and you have no control over their validations, you might want to have something like that. Validations are there to safeguard your data from user input a lot of times. And that user can be a human person using your UI, or it could be a service that's integrating with your system. But you also want to be mindful that there are feelings basically on the other side of everything that you're doing and you want to trust your users and refrain from assuming that they don't know what they're doing. Right. It's a really fine line to walk sometimes because you do want to trust your user, but at the same time, I know users, I don't trust users, but it's <laughs> the difference of lowercase t and capital T, right? I might not trust that they're going to know this system as well as I do. And on the other end of that, I might not trust that everyone is well-intentioned because you do need to protect your system against malicious individuals. But I want to stop that line before I don't trust my users to enter their name properly because that seems like a step too far. Yeah, for sure. We've danced around the block and kind of arrived at the point. Shall we wrap up? Sure. But before we sign off, we've got an announcement to make. I am training for the Berlin Marathon in September, and it's taking more energy than I expected. So I'm going to be taking a back seat with the podcast for a few months. So while you're working on running your third world major marathon, I'm going to have a few guest hosts on. We'll be reading the guides like usual and maybe have a few special episodes here and there as well. Oh, that's exciting. I think so. 
For the next episode, however, a guest to be named later and I will be reading active record callbacks in the Rails Guides. Buckle up for some hot takes. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore Tylee Coupled and on Mastodon at Tylee Coupled at Ruby.social. Or you can email us at tyleecoupled.dev at gmail.com. Show notes can be found in your podcast player or tightlycoupled.dev. See you later. See you in a few months.